yesterday I read something on Twitter that a celebrity that I like reposted and I, not that I felt offended by it, but maybe like frustrated by it. And it was something like people nowadays, or basically like everybody has a podcast and they think that makes them just like, everybody thinks they're worthy of having a podcast or something like that. And the thing that annoyed me about that was, why can only celebrities or known people have a podcast? Uh, Sometimes just normal people have interesting shit to say, and maybe they there's other people out there who feel similarly, but they feel uncomfortable with their voice or whatever. So that upset me. And with that, I just wanted to, again, thank anybody who listens because I really appreciate it. And yeah, that's, that's just basically it. I wanted to get it out there. I mean, I've said this in the past too, like, I think I said 800,000, but there's actually one and a half million podcasts. So thank you for listening to False Expectations. Something that I don't think I repeat enough on here is that not only is this the place where I'm, you know, airing my false expectations and sometimes it's about something super serious, sometimes it's about a life uh, stage. Sometimes it's just funny, uh, or meant to be funny. Um, I want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, another reason for me having this is just because I want it to be okay. And for people to feel okay, not necessarily fitting into the box that you once thought you had to fit into. And that is not to say that I am constantly, like, above that box. I have multiple conversations with friends and family and loved ones about feeling sorry for myself when shit doesn't turn out the way that I want it to. Uh, But I try and get back to the place of, like, it's okay. Like, it doesn't have to be exactly the way that you thought it it was going to be. And it's okay to just constantly be reevaluating that. And with that, I bring you this next episode, which is about a 12-step program. And for those of you who don't know what I mean when I say 12-step programs, I'm talking about different types of addiction. Uh, And you go to like that addiction anonymous and you go through these steps to try and fight that addiction and recover and you're constantly recovering. And I would say I've been on the outside of addiction, different types of addiction um, over the past 10 years, but I've never been close to these types of 12 step programs. And over the past maybe five years, I've become a little bit more familiar and intrigued especially as I am constantly trying to grow as a person. These 12-step programs, in my opinion, whether you're an addict or not, you should dive into them if you just, like, have an interest in 
I don't know, learning or like looking inside yourself or whatever. They're just really, really interesting. And I think just a positive place or thing for all of us to just, I don't know, read a little bit more about. Uh, and also maybe if you have somebody in your life who's going through some sort of addiction, uh, it makes you feel a little bit more, uh, familiar or able to empathize with the person. Uh, and similarly in this same week that I spoke with somebody who is a sex and love addict, who's in uh, you know, recovery for the past, I don't know, 10 or 11 years, uh, a comedian who I am a big fan of, who has been silent since June, came out as, you know, going through a similar type of addiction. And if you listened to a podcast that I had before this, that was called Unlikely Friendships, I talked about uh, being a big fan of Crystalia. And he, you know, unfortunately had a lot of accusations against him last year in June. They, the accusations, which were extremely inappropriate, if true, uh, don't seem to have had real truths to them. But the truth that has come to light is that he is or has, is probably actively, um, going through some sort of a sex addiction. And it's funny. I assume there's a lot of people smiling because I think the first time we all ever heard about this type of disease is with Tiger Woods. And we all were like, that's not a real thing. And it made me start to like when Chris D'Elia, he put out a video in the past week, um, just making himself accountable to, uh, being an addict and there's backlash. It's like we constantly, I don't know if you guys agree, but we're constantly A, trying to cancel people and B, uh, trying to, like we, tr we want people to evolve and grow and apologize and become accountable and then when they do that, we hate on them for it. And it's like, you can't ever win. For instance, Chris Lea came out with this video. There was, there was a lot of positives to it. Um, I thought it was positive. But the, like, if you look in comments, people are lashing out and saying that he, you know, hating on him for it. Justin Timberlake, I think, in the past week or so, two weeks ago, apologized because the whole Britney thing that's I don't know, has been known for years, but suddenly has come to light for a lot of people. Um, there was a piece in her documentary about him and he came out and apologized for it and people hate on him. And it's like, how does anybody, how's anybody supposed to get ahead if they're not allowed to reevaluate and evolve? And I had a conversation with a friend of mine this week who said something that I thought was so interesting and maybe we can all think about it, which is if we are not willing to listen to somebody and give them a second chance, what's the fucking point? And with that, I want to introduce you to my guest this week, 
uh, on False Expectations. Her name is Brienne Davis. She's a Hollywood actress, a writer, a producer, director. You may have seen her in TV shows like Lucifer, Casual, True Blood. She was in the movie Jarhead. She's also produced films. She has a podcast called Secret Life, which is really great. My favorite episode so far has been uh, the one with Olivia Munn, where Olivia talks about an autoimmune disease. That was really interesting. Um, Brienne just is now also an author, and her book is called Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. I got the book and read it in three days. I am not a fiction reader, um, but it reads like a memoir, and I highly recommend it. This episode is kind of eye-opening for me. I will say the conversation's short because Brienne had a hard stop. She took the time to chat with me during um, her son's nap, which if you are a parent, you know is like such valuable me time. Um, and so if you're like, oh my God, you know, we didn't get to everything. I agree. We cover a couple of false expectations this week and I am hoping Brian and I uh, talked about it that, you know, we will have a chat again and because uh, we just didn't cover enough and I could have talked to her for hours. And so without further ado, I give you my conversation with Brian. I hope you guys love it and let me know what you think. Okay, so Brianne Davis, welcome to False Expectations. I am honored and thrilled to have you on today, and I'm honored that you took your me nap time time and chatted with me instead, because I know how valuable that time is. Oh my God, it's so valuable, but it's the only time we can like be with other adults and, and get stuff done, so I'm grateful to be here. <laughs> Good, good, good. So I have to admit to you that before I reached out, I thought that I, if I met you on the street, we could totally be friends, like based on your podcast. And then I found out that you hate Valentine's Day. And I knew even more that we could be best friends. Why uh, do you hate Valentine's Day? I just don't like having to do things because somebody told me to. I don't like yeah. celebrating supposed tos. I like celebrating just because. Oh, interesting. I'm the same way. I don't like to be told what to do. And then they jack up the price for everything. So if a guy would buy me flowers, like my husband bought me flowers on our first Valentine's Day 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. I was like, what? You're a chump. Like I gave him the hardest right. time. Right. I was act we I actually just recorded an episode and my husband is like, I call him a producer, but he's not a producer. He just like is there. So I'm not talking to myself. Um, and we were just talking about how like then they make men special menus for Valentine's Day at a restaurant and it's not even the food that you want to eat. And there's a whole rigmarole. And we were talking about like you go out for a fancy dinner and you stuff your face and then you're supposed to go like fuck after that. Yeah, like, you don't want I, to. I can't. I can't. So anyway, so that was like sold the deal for me. Oh, I love um, it. Yeah. And so here on False Expectations, it's normally me talking about my opinion on like one life's false expectation. Okay. But 
because I have you here and like I legitimately read your book in three days, which <gasps> is I'm not a fiction reader. So I actually was nervous about getting into the book, but it reads uh-huh. like a memoir and I couldn't put it down. Yeah. So thank you for writing it. But there's so many things I want to get to with you. So like there might be an audience, just bear with me. There might be more than one false expectation here. <laughs> Perfect. I'm down for it. But just so awesome. you know, it was a memoir first and then I, I decided to change it. It makes sense, but I still am going to pretend that it was a memoir. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> so quickly, like you, I'm not gonna people. You got to go out and buy this book again. It's called um, "Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict." You got to read it. You'll read it like you. You won't be able to put it down. If I wasn't able to put it down, you won't be able to put it down. So Aww. I kind of know why you. You know, you went to Hollywood. You want to be an actress. You turned. You decided to direct and produce and write and all that great stuff. But t- I will tell you that my expectation of you know what Hollywood is like yeah um you're gonna totally make fun of me but I want you to like debunk as much as you can so I here's like a stupid one which is your bathroom is always gonna be clean like there's never gonna be a hair on like you're you're like there's somebody constantly always cleaning up after you you never have obviously you have a hair out of place but like everything's perfection. That's like, I would say what, what, if I took a broad stroke, that's what I would assume Hollywood life is like. Oh my God. That's so hilarious. I mean, my shirt like has stains on it right now. <laughs> like my hair, I haven't washed it today and that's just not real. I mean, it, listen, I drive around Beverly Hills. I don't live in a mansion. I, I live in Burbank, but, um, even when I go to like my friend's house that live in mansions, their houses are not always together. Their their lives are a hot mess. They are a hot mess. You know, they have breakouts. They have acne. It's just literally you – it's the opposite of what you think it is. Interesting. Seriously. I don't yeah. 100% believe you, but I like that. <laughs> um, something that I read in your book, which mm-hmm. I know was like um, – it's supposed to be fiction, but there, it's based on a lot of truths, yes. is that – you said that an actress or, you know, Roxanne was saying has in her closet mm-hmm. every, for lack of a better word, costume, right? Yes. So that you're prepped for um, going on auditions, right? So like yes. if you needed to be this character or that character. Because of that and the lifestyle of an actress, let's take, mm-hmm. for example, um is so different depending on your role. How does that potentially mess with your head in your own personal identity? Well, I think it messes it messes with your head is you're always trying to be somebody else and mm-hmm. become somebody else. So if you don't have a clear sense of self in general, like you you aren't solid in yourself, you're always wor- like which role do I need to play at this moment at this time? And I think every actress puts on a mask and puts on, you know, like JLo wears her mask of JLo, but she's not really that person and then we mm-hmm. put on different roles to play and yeah, I, I'm literally my closet looks like a crazy person. And during pilot season, like cars, actresses and actors' cars have every outfit you can imagine in the car. It's crazy. Wow. It's that insane. Is crazy. Yeah. So if if you had to, if somebody listening is like going to, they're deciding to like pick up and go to 
Hollywood, what's like your number one advice for a young person? Maybe they're don't, not young. Maybe they just want to change Don't their go. Life. Don't, don't go. do it. Don't do it. Well, here's the beautiful thing now is you don't have to come to Hollywood anymore. You can go to Atlanta. You can go to New York. You can go to Vancouver. You can go. There's so many more places than L.A., to start is so if you're interested, go to those smaller city first. That's my mm-hmm. honest advice and get some roles under your belt, you know, mm-hmm. like the one or two line dialogues, the co-stars, you know, the one day guest stars, because you will understand the business better. And then if you want to make the big move to LA, you'll have a resume. People come out here without a resume and it's really, really hard. Mm. But if you come with roles under your belt and an agent in your local city, it, you have a better footing in the door that you can go up for like the series regular parts, the bigger parts, because those are all still cast in LA really mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and New York I mean, sometimes. That's feel. I feel like that's similar advice to like other industries, like I bring this up on the podcast a lot because I work in marketing, but like if you don't have marketing experience on your resume, unfortunately, you're going to be less likely to be looked at. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, so if you guys think, if anybody's listening or you think walking on the street of Hollywood, you're going to get discovered, like that does not happen (laughs) at all. Like Mm -hmm. anybody you think is an overnight success, if you look back, they've been working for a really long time. And if Mm -hmm. they are an overnight success, they usually crash and burn. Is my experience. I can also imagine if somebody thinks you're an overnight success, but yet you've been working for 20 years, you're like, fuck you. Pretty much. I'm like, I've been a working actor for 20 years, but here's like, and then like some people don't even know who I am, which is fine. I'm like totally Mm -hmm. humble, don't care. But Mm -hmm. somebody's like, what have you been in? And I'm like, I've been working for a very long time. But you know, it's the business. It doesn't really matter. (laughs) Tell me how... How did your life, I don't know what the day-to-day was with like going on auditions or like potentially being on location, X, Y, and Z, once you became a mom, because like I know what it's like how my life changed as a working person once I became a mom. And I do wonder how does that change um, in your profession? A lot. I mean, you have to decide if you're you're going to go away for a month and then you have to decide if you want to take your child with you and you usually have to have a caretaker and they don't pay for it for women or families. They give you like the smallest amount of help. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. So you could be spending, you know, if you go to Vancouver, rent is so expensive in Vancouver. I didn't realize you could get an apartment, one bedroom apartment for $2,400. And then you'd have to pay for like a nanny coming with you or putting your kid in daycare. And so you really have to think about it. What happens a lot for us is I'll go away and then fly home on the weekends, which is exhausting. But Mm -hmm. that's kind of the only way unless you're moving there for a year. It's Mm -hmm. It can be trying. And sometimes you don't want to take jobs. You're like, I don't really want to go do this and be away from my family this long. So it's, it's just you have to juggle what's important and what's not important. And to that point, how in your household have you, um, do you consider yourself legitimately split 50-50 in terms of parenting? And Mm -hmm. what I mean is not just like you're getting up in the middle of the night and you're feeding, but an interesting conversation that I have with a lot of my friends and family is like, there's one person in the family that's thinking about like, oh my God, we need more diapers. But like, how come the other parent isn't thinking about that? And one person, it, like, how do you guys, what, what's the dynamic there? 
Amazing. I mean, I have, I've just been at, my husband is like a saint. He is mm-hmm. so great with my son and, you know, I'll make sure we have the diapers, but he'll make sure we have like the chicken we need for his salad. And then he puts them down in the afternoon and I get them up after his nap. And we really split our time, you know, like I do the bath with him three nights a week and then he does other things. So it's really 50-50 and we have to do that because we're both artists and we're mm-hmm. both self-employed. He directs, he directs a lot of like promotional spots and movies and stuff. So it's nice when we're both here that no no one person is doing more than the other. I don't think I could survive as a, an artist or writing a book, and I'm writing the second book now, without my husband being there to back me up. It's so much work to be a parent. I didn't realize until I became a parent. I was just going to ask you, what was like your biggest misconception? Well, here's my husband likes to make fun of me when I was pregnant. I loved being pregnant. I don't know about you, but I love. I felt like my skin glowed. I was so happy being it. pregnant. You did? Yeah. And my uh, yeah. belly, I didn't have to worry about being in shape really. Like you just have that big belly and there was something nice not having like, not worrying about what my body looked like, especially I've been obsessed with my body for so many years. So mm-hmm. But when I had the baby, I didn't realize, first of all, no one tells you all the bad stuff about breastfeeding. Like you have to oh, wean. Oh, I didn't do that. You have to wean off. And mm-hmm. I got like a clogged duck, like a mastitis, mm. and it was the most excruciating pain. And no one tells you that. Like you have to mm-hmm. wean slowly. Then pumping on set, I was like down working in a movie three months after the baby. And I just didn't realize – I said this thing to my husband and this is what I meant to say is like, I'm just ready for it not to be about me. Like I literally said that. And then when I had the baby, he's like, do you remember you did not want it to be about you and now it's not about you? And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. I forgot. I said but it's really not about us anymore. And as an actor, it's all about you. And now it's like, it's all about him yeah. in, a be- actually- in a beautiful way. Yeah, but I also, like, um, speaking of Hallmark holidays, like, the fact that there's a son and daughter day when all we do is focus on our sons and daughters every day, it's like, give me a break. Yeah, Um, I don't want to hear it. (laughs) Something else that people don't tell you about when you're pregnant is, or when you, like, have the baby, is the after the baby. It's, like, Mm. fucking painful. Yeah, it's so what? painful. I had a C-section too. So that, that healing was not fun at all. By the way, even when you don't have a C-section, it's painful and you have to wear like a diaper for a week. Yeah. It's like, come on. Why you don't had we to wear tell each other this? I had to wear longer, those knit cloth diapers and then the ginormous pad that's like yes. this big. Yeah. And like the hospital gives you one. They're like, oh, you could take I was two stealing months. them. I was yeah. literally stealing them. I was like, yeah. can I... Mine ripped. Like, I just can't make an excuse. I know. If you're listening and you're pregnant, when you get to the hospital, the mesh underwear, grab them and grab it. Grab it in yeah. like droves. Yeah. Um. Okay. So you wrote this book based mm-hmm. on your experiences. I'm sure none of it, not all of it is 100% your life. We don't need to get into that. I do want to say I have experienced not firsthand um, with addiction, just as an outsider. Um, And I've never had experience with this type of addiction. And it was eye opening for me. 
And there's something that you said in the book, which is so obvious, which I think the biggest false expectation about sex and love addiction is that it's fake. And you brought up Tiger Woods, which I was going to bring up to you also, um, and that there's no such thing and people are just out of control. Mm-hmm. Can you just touch on why that is just so false? Well, I think it's such a hidden disease. It's so There's so much shame, and especially as a woman more, I think nobody wants to talk about being addicted to people. Like we are not supposed to do those things. And unfortunately, society amplifies it. They make love sound really dramatic, a lot of drama, passion. Like, So society like says, this is what love looks like. And that's not what love looks like. So for women, especially, they're just really embarrassed. Like you keep picking an unavailable man over and over and over again. You keep going back to bad relationships. You, you know, the the excessive amount of porn no one wants to talk about that it's an epidemic now that porn is actually desensitizing our young boys so they are not able to attach and have intimacy with their partners because hmm. they they envision sex a certain way at a, such a young age um people don't want to talk about masturbation and how if you're having feelings or you having trouble connecting that you do that instead. I mean, there's all these things, so many shameful things people don't want to talk about. And so they throw it away as a man's disease and saying, it's just you sleeping with a bunch of people, having one night stands, having a lot of sex. And here's the thing I want to say, I've never had a one night stand ever Hmm. in my entire life. I don't have a lot of sexual partners. I say how many I have in the book, but I don't for my age. So people, when I say that, I'm like, I'm a recovering sex and love addict. They love to be like, ooh, they get like excited. And I'm like, it is not hot or sexy Mm -hmm. to use people to fill me because Mm -hmm. I'm using a person just like an alcoholic uses a bottle of whiskey. Mm -hmm. When I'm feeling insecure, not enough, low self-esteem, I will like text a guy friend and be like, hi, and flirt, you know, an intrigue or DM a stranger on Instagram or, you know, flirt with the coffee guy, even though I'm married. Like that is not an, that is not appropriate. And nobody wants to talk about it. They think flirting and intriguing outside of relationships is healthy and fun. And it's not, it, it literally cuts you off from intimacy with your partner. Mm. So Here's the big myth. I never wanted to come out as a sex and love addict, ever. That was never my intention. But when I hit 10 years of recovery in the program, I just found myself, all these people were coming to me saying they had this problem and younger and younger generations are coming into the the program. And I just had this moment like, I need to be of service bigger. I need to put a face to this disease that's not Tiger Woods, a guy that just got cheating on him his girlfriend or his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was just bigger than me. And writing the book as a memoir first, it the 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 amazing thing is I did it and I didn't want to write it. <laughs> but after I wrote it, all these stories started coming in and it allowed me to become deeper and reveal more, making it aroma cleft fiction, making it mm-hmm. not completely my story. So it let me go deeper into the pain, into the drama, into – the hilarious times, you know, the addict acting out. So 
I hope that demystifies some of it for you. I don't know. I kind of rambled. <laughs> no, I thought that was really helpful. What did you, what genre did you call it? Aroma Clef Fiction. That's what it what is. is. What does it stand for? So Aroma Club Fiction is like Devil Wears Prada or The Nanny Diaries. It's based on – Yeah, it's based on my experience, but I change the names. I can amplify some of the – change Stories. all the locations. Mm. I, mostly because I don't want to get sued. Let's just be mm-hmm. honest. People can yeah. sue me if they find out who who these people are. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> something that I was thinking about while I was reading the book, and I'm sure that you saw this movie, but maybe you didn't, but the Julia Roberts um, Runaway Bride. Yes, 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 yes. So there's a part in that movie where – who's the – oh, Richard Gere. He, like, asked her how she took her eggs. Yeah, and, and she, she didn't know. Well, she always took them as her partner took them. Yeah. And I thought that was so interesting because it seems similar to the Roxanne character is that Mm -hmm. she didn't really have her own identity. She was taking on the identities of the relationships that she was in. Yeah, she would. And I did the same thing. I would find out and I could read people. And I think as an actress, it helped me read people very quickly that I would know what they would want in me. And Mm. I would somehow mold myself into what I thought they envisioned I was. And I would love to say, I said this thing a lot, like I I would get involved with somebody and I would say, hey, don't put me on a pedestal. I'm not perfect. And then they'd end up doing it. And then I could destroy them and then they could get upset. And I'd be like, I told you I wasn't perfect. Like Mm -hmm. it gave me an out. And definitely if I watch Runaway Bride, I think she's a love addict. She doesn't, she just attaches herself to other people. And that's why I wanted to write this book. I'm so glad you said that because I, after getting sober in this program, watch so many movies, watch so many shows. And I'm like, she's a love addict. He's a sex addict. He's a love addict. He's an avoidant. He's an anorexic. Like I can literally pick out in almost every show somebody that has this problem, but nobody puts a name to it. Nobody's saying this is a problem. Nobody's mm-hmm. saying you shouldn't be looking for a soulmate. There is no such thing as a soulmate. No one should complete you. Mm. That's always <laughs> why um the advice that people get is like you have to love yourself before you could love somebody else yeah um so i know a little bit of this because of your book but yeah. can you talk a little bit about how does being a love and um sex addict potentially affect your other relationships not your lovers but your platonic relationships your family relationships how like how does that work into this addiction All of it. It, This is the thing. When you get into the program, you think it's about your love relationship. But once you take away that love relationship or take away that addiction to that person, you realize you literally use every single person in your life. You use your family. There's roles you play. You know, for me, I really, and I talk about this in the book a lot, like my friends, I realized I used my girlfriends to fill me. I would, you know, be having a hard day and I'd reach out and I'd call one and I'd keep her trapped on the phone for 30 minutes being like, here's my problem, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd hang up the phone. And I remember sitting in my car this time after an audition one time and I did that and I hung up the phone and I said, I'm not feeling better. And I remember frantically dialing another number and picking up another and calling another friend of mine and keeping her on the phone for 20 minutes. And I still didn't feel better. 
Hmm. And I hung up and I was about to call my sister and I go, oh my God, I'm like using my friends to film me. I'm using, I have no connection and no tools to deal with my own emotions. And I just, I, and my family, you know, we had very, you know, difficult relationships. And for the first year of my sobriety, I didn't even talk to my dad. We had, I, he had no boundaries. And I had to tell him like, if you don't respect my new boundaries, then I'm not going to be in your life. And it took a year not talking to him and our relationship changed. So it's like, it, it literally deals with every relationship and what the program really does after you deal with that, you deal with your family of origin, your friends, the lover or whoever, then you look at yourself and it's actually about finding your own self-love. That's what the whole program is about. It's not about finding a perfect partner. It's finding yourself. I have to say, again, I have no experience in this, any real addiction world. But what I have learned from other people and other podcasts is like the, I don't even know how to umbrella it, but like the Alcoholics Anonymous, this sex and love addict, these programs, the steps that you guys go through, honestly, after learning about them, Mm -hmm. everybody should go through them. Yeah, everybody should go through them. It's like the deep dive that you go in on yourself just to me feels so important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something else that I really liked about the book is like you, I mean, you're not outlining every single step, but like you are kind of. Yeah. And with each, you know, um, outline, I I just encourage everybody to pick it up because it's just such a good way to self-reflect on yourself um and just to just learn more about yourself there's a constant you just posted something today actually about like constant self-evolution um it doesn't stop and so don't i i would encourage everybody to just not don't think like oh i'm 35 i'm done like Mm. even if you're not any sort of addict just in regular life like i'm a grown-up there is only space to grow. I just would highly encourage everybody to take a, a look at these steps and just, I don't know, reevaluate. It feels really healthy. Yeah. And it's brutal. And I'm not going to lie. You should, everybody should do it. You know, there's so many programs. A friend of mine read the book and she realized she had a problem with money that mm. she was using shopping and spending and credit cards. Like, and she then went to DA and looked at her money after reading my book that has nothing to do with money, you know? Mm-hmm. And then another friend of mine realized she did that with bags of chips and she would hide chips in her car when she was stressed and hide them from her husband. And she was embarrassed by it. And she realized she uses food to self-soothe. And what the steps do is it strips away all those things. And then we look at our character defects and then we look at how they affect our relationship and our part in them. And then we know our main character defects, which all those character defects in there are mine. I will admit that. (laughs) All 22 of them. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And then you just keep going through making amends to people uh, saying when you're wrong, 
admitting you're wrong and taking your part in it. And then the beautiful thing at the end is, you know, you pray to a God of your understanding, not a religious God, and you meditate and you sit quiet with yourself and then you're of service to other people. And that is what I'm doing now. I'm living a step 12 with my book, with the podcast, with talking to just me and you communicating is a step 12. We are Mm. being of service to each other. Interesting. So you said that you mentioned two people that are like your direct friends that read your book and then realized that they might, what do you recommend to somebody who's like thinking maybe they have some sort of an issue with anything? Um, Like what's the first best step? to self-realize and start making a change? Well, what really helped me is that realization I couldn't stop. I remember, you know, my bottom where I was about to blow up my relationship with this person I didn't even like as a person. And I, and I was like, wow, I had this moment. And we all have these moments. It's like the like dark night where you're like, am I going to be doing this the rest of my life? Like, am I going to be doing this pattern the rest of my life? So just recognizing that and then, you know, saying, you know what, I'm not going to drink this week or I'm not going to overeat or I'm not going to go shopping on Amazon or I'm not going to text friends or, you know, go on a bunch of dates, whatever it is. We all have some sort of ism. We're humans. So I would say, like, try to stop. And then if you realize you can't stop, talk to somebody, open your mouth, see a therapist. For me, it was going to therapy first. And she was the one that revealed to me I was a sex and love addict. And if you are thinking you have a problem in relationships, if there's drama in your relationship, that's the first key for a sex and love addict. If somebody in your life brings out the worst of you, that mm. is a big key that I, mm-hmm. I tell people to recognize. Like if that person isn't bringing out the best of you, there's a problem there. Mm-hmm. And there's these 40 questions that I talk about in the book also. It's like 40 self-diagnosed questions on Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous and go on and fill it out. It takes two minutes, a yes or no. And they say if you get more than five yeses that you have a problem. And I honestly can tell you it's the best thing I've ever done for myself. The and best nobody thing. can see that, right? That's anonymous. No. Oh, yeah. Nobody can see. Like you're filling that list out and nobody can see. Yeah, you print it up and you do it on your at your home and no one will ever see it and you can rip it up afterwards and it's just between you and yourself and see and it's just like I just keep thinking why would you want to spend the rest of your life never fully connected to another human being is what happened to me. Like am I going to be on my deathbed? always having one foot in out of every relationship I have because I'm scared to get hurt, right? I'm scared of being abandoned. I'm scared of really loving. I'm scared of getting hurt. I'm scared that I'm not worthy. So I'll leave first. So I didn't know all those things until I did the work until Mm -hmm. I, you know, surrendered. Yeah. Um, And something that you said earlier was a couple of things. One, you never wanted to write this book. Yes. (laughs) And two, that you wrote it as a memoir first. I I totally understand why it's now a novel, but what led you to writing the book? My husband. (laughs) He seems great. He is. He's a saint. But hey, he's been in 12-step for 32 years. He's a recovering Mm. alcoholic. You know, like he got sober really, really young and he's worked the steps so many times and he's just a really good person. But he said to me randomly one day, like, 
hey, there's this 90-day novel course. And I looked at him like he was insane. Like, wow. I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? I'm dyslexic. I have ADHD. Like, I don't want to write dialogue or write. I want people to give me my dialogue and I'm fine just going to set and being a working actor. Like, that's cool. And then he just kept mentioning it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like little sprinkles here and there. And I was like, right. what are you – you know, by the sixth time, I was like, what in God's name? And he's like, I don't know. I just have this hit. He's like, take it. Just take the course. It's not that much money. If you hate it after a week or two, just stop. No one has to know. Only I know. So I said, fine, leave me alone, you know. And I took it and the book poured out of me in 45 days. Wow. 45 days. Well, the first draft, not the, the you know, I had to work on it. But yeah, it just spilled out of me. And it was like bigger than me, you know. Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't uh, plan on doing it. <laughs> and what is your biggest misconception in writing, in the book writing and publishing process? I think the bis- biggest, it's that it's not doable, right? Like you mm. have this thing, like you think it's big. It's like, oh, that's too daunting. I can't do it. You just have to do a little each day is what I would say. And the other misconception. I feel like people don't try. Rewriting is the hardest part, is the hardest. I hate rewriting. So that for me was a little torturous. But So what happened after you were like, oh, this can't be a memoir for X, Y, and Z? Did you have to go back in or did like the editor editing team help you? I had this moment where I woke up at 3 a.m. and I wrote a scene. I had a dream and I wrote ran into the office and I started writing this scene that didn't happen to me. And it's not even a story I've heard in a meeting or through a friend or something like that. And I just let that happen because I still thought it was a memoir. And so I (laughs) kept doing that and putting all these scenes and amplifying and changing locations and, you know, taking little stories from other people I've known throughout the 10 years, now 11 years of recovery. And I gave the book to my husband (laughs) This is funny because I just found this out. But he read the first draft, like the first, like after I put on, and he read to chapter six and then, or chapter seven, and then he couldn't pick it up again. Hmm. And And I asked him like weeks later, like, what, are you done reading the book? You know, what do you two think? And he's like, I haven't read past chapter seven. And I was like, why? What's the problem? He's like, there's just a lot of stuff that I didn't know about you. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, he said this specific thing in the book. And he said, that didn't happen to me. (laughs) And he was like, uh, it's in your book. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, what do you mean it didn't happen? I said, that just came from a dream. Like I don't. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he said, okay. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit better. But, you know, we're both addicts. I don't know everything he's done. I don't even know how many people he's slept with. Like, you're Mm -hmm. allowed to have little things. But it just really – I said, so he's like, so this is not a memoir. But it's not – it's self-help. But it's not self-help. You know, like, what is it? And I said, I don't know what it is. It's all these things. It's, it's, you know, a memoir, self-help, you know, a chiclet. It has that chiclet quality. Yeah. 
And I just allowed myself to keep writing. And that would be my other advice. Even when you don't know what you're writing, just keep writing because it organic, I organically allowed it to happen because I had no set plan. Mm-hmm. And it, it beautifully, she became her own person. You know, I didn't even know her name when I was writing her and how I found her name. I was listening to the the music on Pandora and the song Roxanne from Police came on. And I was like, oh, oh my God, that's, there she is. Roxanne, welcome to the world. So I gave birth to her and she is a part of me, but she's a part of other people's stories. And, you know, and I just... The reason I wrote the book, and I really love to say this, is that when I started the program, everything I read was so clinical. It was so Mm -hmm. academic. If you pick Mm -hmm. up any book about sex and love addiction or sex addiction or love addiction or codependency, it's so clinical and you read one page and I couldn't retain it. I'd want to throw it against the wall. So I really wanted to write something that like a non-addict like yourself or people can be entertained by it, but then Mm -hmm. understand the disease more and understand like the program and see, oh my God, I have friends that do this or I do this, you know, that kind of stuff is important. I also think even if you are not an addict, the some of the stories and some of the self-reflection that Roxanne does resonates for everybody. Like I don't even, there's just the story with cool girl mm-hmm. um it just resonates it's really yeah. there's just a lot of stuff in there that people will connect to so i highly encourage everybody to pick it up um i i literally could talk to you actually for another hour but i know I that know. you have places to be so thank you so so much for chatting with me um again for taking your you time with me uh, listeners, there is so many ways to keep up with Brienne. I highly recommend you do. I was a fan of hers before this chat, but at this point, it's clear that I'm going to figure out a way for us to be buds. Besties. <laughs> Besties. So pick up her book wherever books are sold, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. Listen to her podcast wherever you listen to pods. It's called Secret Life. Uh, my favorite episode so far is the Olivia Munn one. And the reason being is because I admire both of you and think that you're both beauties, which, um, and you both had arm things where you were like, you felt um, insecure about your arms. And I was totally. like, I'm, I'm a regular person who's recording a podcast in my closet. And I feel that way about my arms. So like, people in Hollywood are just like everybody. We are. I mean, honestly, we are. Every single person I've met, nobody, even the biggest celebrities, I'm like, oh, they're just a normal person. Yeah. Honestly. I can imagine. I'm saying, yeah, like I know, but I can imagine. (laughs) Um, And lastly, follow Brianne herself on Instagram at the Brianne Davis. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. And I wish you so much luck with this book. And maybe one day we can chat again. Yes, of course. Anytime. Awesome. I actually said this to Brianne after uh, we were done recording, which is I could have talked to her all day. Maybe all day is just like a stupid thing to say because who wants to talk to anybody all day? But I learned a lot, but could always learn more. Um, If you guys enjoyed the episode, let me or Brianne know. We will hop on an Insta Live together. Um, She'll come back on the show because 
as you heard, we bonded and we will totally <laughs> be BFFs before the end of the month. Uh, but seriously, pick up her book, Secret Life of a Hollywood Sex and Love Addict. Um, God, there's so much in there that I connected with as a non-addict because there's just a lot of regular life stories in it. And I'm sure that you guys will too. Follow Brianne. And all the ways on Instagram, she's the Brianne Davis. Uh, Secret Life Novel is the Instagram for her book. Secret Life Podcast is the podcast that I was talking about towards the end. The episode with Olivia Munn is really, really interesting. I highly recommend it. Brianne just popped on TikTok, so Davis. I appreciate you guys, as always, listening to False Expectations. Rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts so that more people can discover me. Share us with your friends. Let me know where you are listening. Don't forget to follow me at DDramadnig on Instagram, the podcast at False Expectations Pod, and I will talk to you guys later. Later.